Hi there, Dr. B here with your modules four and five clarifying lecture. So I'll talk about your announcements. I'll talk about CyberRat, um, both module three revisions, module four and module five, and then also your inner teach for module four and five. Um, next clarifying lecture will be the last one for the term. So module six, I typically don't do one in the last module because everybody's moved on and typically um, are ready for their next class. So um, module six will be the last clarifying lecture of the term. Your module five quizzes look good. Not really a lot of feedback there. You all got the assignment and it looks great. Um, also, same thing with your module three revisions of your cyber rat. Um, most of you did a really good job with module four, um, completed this correctly stuck only to describing the results. Um, I didn't see a whole lot of editorializing, so nice job there. And module five looked good too. Um, the only thing to remember is that when we are shaping behavior, there is no other schedule of reinforcement used other than differential reinforcement. So it is a differential reinforcement schedule. This is one of those situations where um, you might've learned differential reinforcement as a procedure, but it's actually a schedule of reinforcement. Um, let's talk about interteach. In general, um, I love the fact that a lot of you are giving kudos to your group members for your group conversations. It sounds like you're having um, really good conversations among yourselves that you're learning from each other, and I am really glad to hear that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, some things I saw, especially with like the extinction punishment stuff. Um, a lot of you got the part about there are other ways to decrease a response um, other than extinction. So that's why we can't say that decreasing responding is always extinguished. Um, there's punishment, there's free reinforcement, there, um, there's all kinds of ways to decrease responding. So um, to say that extinction is the, um, the only way or that every response we're extinguishing responses with punishment, that is an incorrect term. Um, a little um, statement about intrinsic motivation. So I saw this and I saw motivation on module five. Um, motivation itself is an explanatory fiction, okay? So there is no such thing as motivation. Reinforcement can't motivate. Motivating operations muddy the water a lot. But m when we're talking about motivating operations, we're talking about things that either... Um, make the reinforcer stronger or make the reinforcer weaker. Um, we're not talking about, you know, how motivating they are for the individual. Again, because we're talking about doing things with behavior, not with individuals. Um, resurgence versus spontaneous recovery. This is a tricky one um, because they're sometimes used interchangeably and in applied work, you'll see spontaneous recovery over resurgence. Resurgence technically is when the behavior returns during the same session. Spontaneous recovery is when the behavior returns later. Um, a previous behavior that um, was placed on extinction. So a behavior that was extinguished, if you see a blip during the session, that's resurgence. If you go into another session and you see that behavior again, that's spontaneous recovery. Um, not wanting to. It has two problems. The first is that want is an explanatory fiction. So anytime we're saying that um, someone doesn't want to do something 
or we're saying that we want to do something. Want is an explanatory fiction. We can't measure it. It's internal. Um, it's imprecise. So you want to avoid that. The other part about shape intrinsic motivation. So first of all, not every behavior that is acquired is shaped. Um, so that's the first part. Um, the second part is that there's no such thing as intrinsic motivation. Reinforcement is reinforcement is reinforcement, whether it happens under the skin or outside of the skin. There is no one better reinforcer than another. Um, there is no one better reinforcement process than another. So um, there is no such thing as intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. That's really more of a cognitive term and a bit more of an explanatory fiction. Um, I'm still seeing some interventions, although module five, you did way better with this. Um, I can see that you're taking the stuff to heart that you're saying, you know, um, these are not things that we do to people. I saw a lot of that and I was really pleased to see it. Um, these are things that happen within the natural environment that help explain why we do what we do. So, um, and that's a really important distinction. I think you, a lot of you are getting that. So, um, kudos to you for that. There is a difference between operant and respondent extinction. Um, the task list doesn't really get into respondent extinction, but um, know that Pavlov is just the pairing of a stimulus with a response. That then um, an unconditioned stimulus is paired with a neutral stimulus, which then becomes a conditioned stimulus, or as Catania calls it, a conditional stimulus. Um, that's respondent learning. Operant learning adds that third term of reinforcement. Pavlov did not reinforce behavior, and that's really important to know. Um, is the decrease in value an abolishing operation? Somebody asked this question, the answer is yes. So when you're talking about motivating operations, you've got two kinds. You've got an establishing operation that increases or maintains the value of a reinforcer. An abolishing operation decreases the value of a reinforcer or the magnitude of that reinforcer. So that is um, that was a great question. And yes, you are on the right track. Um, the question in module five about instructional control, this is about a 50-50 split as to whether or not people got this. Um, and people who got it really got it. Um, so Instructional control is the relationship between a verbal stimulus and a response. I want to talk a little bit about verbal because I think that was confusing to a lot of people. What does verbal mean? Verbal means any type of languagey, communicative type of response. Um, so sign language is verbal, written is verbal, um, text is verbal, um, math problems are verbal, music is verbal. Okay. So, um, and is the relationship between that verbal stimulus and a response. So we cannot earn instructional control. We are not in control. This has nothing to do with building relationships with individuals. Okay. So if I see a B flat on a page, I put my flute to my mouth and I play B flat, that B flat, playing that B flat is under instructional control of that note on the page. If I do this and you go over and you go over to the, or you look over um, 
to the place where I point, that point is under it, that point, your behavior is under instructional control, that point. Um, if I say two plus two is, and you say four, that behavior is in, under instructional control of saying two plus two. When you go to the restaurant and you see that little line that says tip, and you calculate a tip and put it on in that in that little line, that line that says tip is the instruction. Your behavior is under instructional control of that line that says tip. Okay, so that um, and that goes along with we don't do things to people, we don't control people. That's not what ABA is about. That's not what behavior analysis is about. Behaviors under control of the environment at large. Change a part of the environment, behavior's gonna change. Simple as that. Um, someone suggested a diagram for all these, and it's a great idea. Um, I'm not much of a graphic artist myself. Uh, I do have Canva and I've tried a few things, um, but I don't know that I can throw something together that would be um, as good as somebody else could. Um, there are some visual ABA guides. They're mostly for RBTs though. Um, there's one I think it's called Learn ABA Visually, um, but I can't attest to the quality of it. Um, but, you know, someone wants to take that on, you know, as a, as a study aid or something like that, you know, I'm happy to look at it for um, accuracy. And if it's great, it's great. You know, just give me credit that uh, I looked over it, but, um, yeah, if you want to put that together, I'm, I'm all, I'm all ears, may even use it. Um, and so going to kind of piggybacking back on the instructional control piece, um, I saw a lot of you say, you know, now that I've taken this course and I see that behavior analysis is not necessarily us doing something to people that I'm seeing some of the errors in these anti-ABA blogs and it's starting to make sense. And that warms my heart. I love it. Um, because yes, that's absolutely true. Um, sometimes they're spot on. I'm not going to, you know, say, oh, they're always wrong and that's it. Sometimes they're spot on, but a lot of these things have been taken out of context. And like I've said before, I think it's because we did it. I think it's because we tried to make these terms and concepts so accessible to the lay public that we watered them down a little bit too much and now they mean something they shouldn't. Um, and so, you know, anytime that you get a chance to myth bust with someone who listens, um, I take advantage of that because I think we do need to uh, revamp our PR just a little bit. Um, again, I am totally seeing you being much more careful with terms and concepts. I think you're getting this general idea. Um, a lot of you have come to me and said, you know, when I first started this course, um, I felt like I didn't understand it. I felt dumb. I was trying to figure out, you know, I thought I knew this stuff. Um, why are you being so picky? Um, this is ridiculous. I don't want to do this. You know, I felt all of those things myself when I took the course like this. And this is not a question of, I realize that it kind of sounds like I'm hazing you somehow. Like, you know, if, if I had to suffer, you had to suffer. That's not what this is. What I'm saying is, is that this is important stuff. And 
when you're trying to learn something at this level of precision, there's going to be a moment. I think this is actually kind of, you know, what they call the Dunning-Kruger moment where, you know, you're a novice, you don't know anything, you go up here, you kind of think that you know everything. This is actually a good test of your growth as a professional and your expertise that you're kind of going down and going, well, maybe I need to learn a little bit more. Um, that is a good thing. It's also a good thing that I see you getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger in this stuff. So I think you're growing. I think you're um, getting much better at things, um, but it's just a matter of practice. It's a matter of talking precisely. So, um, you know, among us, we talk super precisely because that's what this class is for. Now, how can you translate that out into the real world without alienating people? Um, so, you know, that's something that you want to practice too as you go along. Um, some things that I did see that I keep seeing is that I see things like this person's doing something, this organism is doing something to get the reinforcer. We don't know that. That's tele teleological. We know that there's a relationship between this and this response and the stimulus that comes after it. We know that this, that this stimulus reliably evokes this response. We know that. Okay. But what the motive is, again, motive, motivation, explanatory fiction, we don't know. You know, I don't know what your plan is. I don't know what your intention is. I don't think necessarily most of the time an organism knows what their intention is. Um, that requires a level of verbal behavior that's a little different. So to say that, oh, well, I, you know, um, this person's doing this because they want or because they're going to get a reinforcer or whatever that is, that's a leap. It's a teleological leap. We can talk about relationships. We can talk about what we see. We can talk about patterns. We can talk about correlations. But again, if you think about, you know, the idea that correlation is not causation, you know, like there's a correlation between um, ice cream and drownings. That doesn't mean that ice cream causes drownings. There's a correlation between this response and this um, stimulus. So it doesn't mean that the presence of the stimulus causes that behavior to occur. That's a bit of a leap. It's teleological. Um, just for terminology's sake, when you're talking about respondent um, or classical conditioning, that's when you elicit. And when you're talking about operant conditioning, we're talking about evoke. So elicit, respondent, evoke, operant. Um, and again, back with that to get the reinforcer, you also don't want to say it's a reinforcer because. Because we don't know for sure. All right, so questions. Um, somebody asked to clarify um, extinction versus extinguish. So extinction is the process. Okay, so the breaking of the response reinforcer relationship is extinction. When that response reinforcer relationship is broken, we say that, be, that response has been extinguished. So it's kind of after the fact, once everything goes down. Um, but extinction is the process. And again, it's the breaking of the bond between the response and the reinforcer because um, there is a correlation between this response and this reinforcer. 
when this reinforcer is no longer in the equation, this response also goes down too. Okay. How is extinction um, connected with escape and avoidance? And I'm going to go with this with regression, um, resurgence, and spontaneous recovery a little bit because that was another question. Um, so there are side effects to extinction. Um, and this is not extinction as a procedure because I know there's a lot of talk about do we use extinction, do we not use extinction. I would argue that extinction is a natural part of life and that there's no escaping it. Um, so the one of the side effects of extinction is, of course, the extinction burst. We've all learned about the extinction burst when, it, when reinforcer is no longer no longer reliably follows a response. There's a burst in that responding before it drops off. And we, you know, then we throw some explanatory fictions in there. You know, they're trying harder to get the reinforcer and we do those teleological types of things. But we know that they're, you know, once the reinforcer no longer reliably follows a response, there's a burst in responding and then it comes back down. It's, it's a curve. There's also other things that happen. So there's also inductive responding. So novel behaviors start to emerge once a behavior is um, placed on extinction. So um, you might see this in the operant chamber that you see an increase in grooming or you see an increase in um, pacing or something to that effect. You see this in humans where if you place a behavior on extinction, other behaviors emerge. Um, this is that variation and selection. So if there's variation, if one of those behaviors is reinforced, it then ends up in the repertoire. Um, and this is why we, as a procedure, extinction is not typically used in isolation. Um, or it may be used to increase the variability of a response. We also know that there is extinction-induced aggression. So if you see this in an operant chamber, Behavior is no longer reinforced. We see some biting of the chamber. We might see um, some gnawing. Uh, if we put our hand in the chamber, we might get bitten. Um, so those things are typically all seen when uh, a response is placed on extinction. This is typical, normal, happens to rats, pigeons, humans, um, happens in the natural environment, this is not necessarily procedural in nature. So it's like, well, how do you stop that? You know, it's just part of the thing. Um, and so sometimes in the natural environment, a lot of times when we use extinction as a procedure, what happens is, is that we then um, reinforce the behavior that was previously placed on extinction. Um, and so if we see a resurgence of that behavior, which a resurgence is within the session, then if we reinforce that, now it's back in the repertoire full force. Same thing with spontaneous recovery. Um, regression itself is more towards the inductive behavior that we may, um, you may see behaviors that were um, lower in the response class hierarchy. So when you're, um, you shape lever press, which you all did, um, if you were to place lever press on extinction, you might see one of those behaviors that you reinforced previously come on back. Um, and again, that's that variation in, and if one of those behaviors is reinforced, that's that selection, okay?
Um, we talked a little bit about that intrinsic motivation. There really isn't one. Um, there is just reinforcement. And reinforcement can occur outside the skin or under the skin, doesn't matter. Um, how are gestural and model prompts verbal behavior? Because they're communicative in nature. Because, and what Skinner said is verbal behavior is behavior mediated by another person, um, which basically means that one person does it and another person responds to it. There isn't like a mediator um, per se. It means that one person does it and another person responds to it. Um, so gestural prompts, you do it, another person responds to it, that counts as verbal behavior. Modeling, um, you do it, someone responds, that it counts as verbal behavior. So um, remember that verbal behavior does not have to be vocal, nor does it have to be language-based to be verbal behavior. Anything that fits the, um, fits the mold of something that you do that someone else responds to fits the mold of verbal behavior. So, um, you know, there's a t-shirt that's come out that says all behavior is communication and um, you know, one of my friends said, but if you scratch your butt in the shower, is that communication? And the answer is no, because nobody's mediating anything. There is no, you know, one person, um, mediates another person response. Okay. So that is, that is how verbal behavior versus kind of instrumental behavior is different from each other. What's an SD versus an S delta? This is a really hard one because for every SD, there's an S delta. For every S delta, there's an SD, right? Um, so, you know, you could argue it either way. It's kind of like the difference between negative reinforcement and punishment. Um, it's all in the details. So an SD reliably evokes a response. It signals that reinforcement is available. So um, in the operant chamber, Typically, when reinforcement is available, a light goes on in the chamber. That signal, that SD, signals that reinforcement is available. When there are multiple keys, the key that is going that is designed to evoke responding is typically lit. Okay, that's an SD. S delta signals that reinforcement is not available. And a lot of you kind of, I think you're confusing SD, S delta with matching law. Um, which I'll get to in a second. So an S delta, if you're talking about an operant chamber, if the key's not lit, reinforce pecking will not um, be followed by reinforcement. So that says, don't do the thing. Reinforcement is not available for the thing. So, for example. Um, showing up on campus on a Sunday afternoon to go see the advisors, you're not going to do that. Why? Because on the website, it says Sunday's closed. Building is closed. That's an S delta. Office hours, Monday through Friday, four to six. It's six o'clock or it, six o'clock. It's five o'clock. That's an SD that says if you show up to the advising office, they'll be there. Your behavior will be reinforced. Okay. That is the difference. 
what I saw a lot of people do is put in choices. So, you know, my, this, um, this thing here is this price and this thing here is this price. So that price is higher. So it's an S delta. That's not necessarily how it works. Okay. That is more matching law. That is where you have two concurrent schedules happening at the same time. Choice A um, has the denser reinforcement schedule. Choice B has the leaner one. We tend to go with choice A. Whereas SDs and S deltas talk about signaling. Okay, it signals. Is reinforcement present? That's an SD. Is reinforcement not present? That's an S delta. Okay, so those are the difference between the two. And then how do you know if something is an ST or an MO? Um, recent work, I think, has muddied this water a little bit more because there are some people who say, well, it doesn't matter. Um, but as you know, I think it does. Um, so an SD is a discrete signal that reinforcement is available. So it is just, if I... It, Hey, do the thing. Reinforcement is available. That's what that SD does. An MO affects how powerful that reinforcement contingency is going to be. So, um, for example, um, i trying to think of something that would affect the power of a reinforcer that's not food, because we have a lot of food examples. Um, If you are, let's say, um, going to a concert, okay, you got tickets for a concert, and the gates open, okay, that's the SD to go in, right? The time of day before entering the, uh, entering the concert may be an MO. So if you've arrived two hours early, the gates open 90 minutes ahead of time, and you have assigned seats, so it's not like, you know, you get in earlier, then that might be abolishing operation for you going in right away because that reinforcer isn't quite as strong. However, if the gates open 90 minutes beforehand, you have tickets and the first people in get the best seats, that's an MO for coming in much earlier. It makes that behavior way more, um, that reinforcer for the behavior way more strong. Okay, that was terrible grammar, but hopefully you understand what I'm saying. Um, so the difference between an SD and SD signals reinforcement is available. MO affects the quality or the magnitude of the reinforcer. How strong is it going to be to evoke that response? All right, so that's it for me. Um, I will see you next time. Have a great, great, great rest of your week.